Ladies and gentlemen, we are currently holding for further traffic clearance. Attention, please. Eastern Airlines Flight 19, your holiday cruise to the emerald beauty of a Puerto Rican rainforest. Now ready for departure. The People Mover has stopped temporarily. Please remain in your car and stay seated at all times. What are you hanging around for? Let's go have some fun! W, w Radio, your information station. Hello, my friend, and welcome to the WW Radio Show, your Walt Disney World information station. I am your host, Lou Mangiello, and this is show number 614, and I'm here once again not only to help you have the best Disney vacation experience when you go to the parks, but I also want to bring you some of that Disney magic wherever you are with the podcast, my live video broadcast on Facebook every Wednesday night, books, audio tours, and more. Whether you're planning a vacation or love the history, details, secrets, and stories, there's something in the show for you, because each week I'm going to take you from the parks to the screens and everything in between. And if you're a new listener, thank you, welcome. Please go back and check out some of all the past episodes for interviews, top tens, reviews, and more. You can subscribe to the podcast and Apple Podcasts or Spotify and find everything else at www.radio.com. In my continuing series highlighting the legends of Walt Disney Imagineering, this week I sit down with Joe Lancicero, the former Senior Vice President of Creative at Walt Disney Imagineering. Joe joins me to discuss his personal journey, including his work at Walt Disney Feature Animation, working under and with Tony Baxter and Marty Sklar at Imagineering, the influence of Mark Davis, and his work on attractions and shows in Disneyland, Walt Disney World, Hong Kong Disneyland, and Tokyo Disneyland and Disney Sea, including the genesis and creation of Mystic Manor's characters, designs, technology, and story. We go in-depth into the theory and process and emotional impact of storytelling, and Joe also shares advice for anyone looking to become an Imagineer. I'll then have the answer to our last Walt Disney World trivia question of the week, and I'll pose a new challenge for your chance to win a Disney prize package. Then stay tuned to the end of the show for information, updates, your voicemails, and more. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this week's episode of the WW Radio Show. You can design and create and build the most wonderful place in the world, but it takes people to make the dream a reality. And that quote from Walt Disney will always remain true as it's the passion and creativity behind so many talented people, both individually and collectively, that allows us as guests to enjoy and love and appreciate these places and spaces and experiences. And one of those incredible creatives is Joe Lancicero, who for 30 years shared his imagination, his insights and his gifts during his time as a Disney animator and at Walt Disney Imagineering and helping to bring to life attractions and experiences in both the domestic and international Disney parks 
as well as a Disney Cruise Line. And I am so excited to welcome to the show former Imagineer Joe Lancicero. Wow. Thank you. So that was that was a very nice introduction. I, I'm humbled and honored to be here today. <laughs> uh, listen, this is going to be a meeting of the Joe Lancicero fan club. So get ready because uh, <laughs> there's a lot of there's a lot that you have done that I'm excited to to talk about. But I want to start. I look, I want to start at the beginning because I think that's where all stories should. I'm a big Marvel fan, as you noticed, and origin story is important. <laughs> And I think where we, we start is sometimes as interesting and, and important as where we end up. And I think it helps to tell the complete story as it sort of bookends our personal journey. So growing up, um, as, as little Joe Lancicero, were you always, um, you know, a young creative boy? As far back as I can remember, um, I had the creative spark. Uh, my mother always tells the story. Uh, I believe I was in kindergarten and she got a call from the teacher and uh, my mother of course was concerned because she goes, Oh my God, he's already starting to act up. What's going on here. And actually the teacher was calling because she was so impressed with um, a drawing that I did. And it was of Monstro, the whale. And, and when the teacher explained to her and she, my mom explained, well, you know, we watched, we went to the movies and we saw Pinocchio and it obviously had such an effect on me. I mean, that, that was scary and powerful when you're six years old, five year, years old, but um, it made an impression on me. And I went back, I went to school the following day, and I guess during art time, I drew this monstro, and, and the, the, the teacher was so impressed, she had to call my mother. So yeah, uh, as far back as I can remember, I've loved to draw and create and make music. I'm also a musician. Um, so I think we're, it would, it, we're born with it. You know, I, did, I, I didn't ask for this. It was a gift given to me. <laughs> and uh, I'm happy to have this gift. And I've been incredibly, incredibly um, lucky to be able to use this gift through my entire life and, you know, make stuff that people enjoy. Well, and I love the fact that you referenced, you know, Pinocchio, because I think that I was going to actually ask you, you know, are... Is there sort of that specific moment? You know, look, so much of what you create, I think, sort of, you know, blows the minds and boggles the minds of so many guests the first time or multiple times they see it. And to be able to look back and say, yeah, there is this seminal moment that I remember that I was impacted and I ran back to the house and I started drawing. And I assume that you had parents that were probably incredibly supportive of what you were doing as well. Uh, yeah, you know, they they both passed on, but. Uh, especially my mother, she was incredibly supportive. You know, I was a crazy kid. You know, I was, you know, building robots in my garage and, you know, making animation. And my, I don't think my dad quite understood, you know, the, the creative spirit because he came from a little different, different world, but was, was always very, very supportive. You know, I, you know, I grew up in Burbank, California, um, not so far from the Disney studios. I grew up in, the, um, I was born in the late fifties and, you know, growing up in the sixties. So every Sunday night was watching uncle Walt and, you know, and, um, and at least a couple times a year, we made the, the pilgrimage to Disneyland, you know, usually at Christmas and summertime. And um, I just grew up, you know, completely taken by, by Disney and the Disney magic um, although I had a lot of other interests as well, but they, they certainly were um, probably my, my biggest influences. So, um, 
I like I couldn't escape it. It was there. <laughs> oh, and a very in, a quick, quick aside, quick, interesting story. Um, my father was in the arcade business and uh, he and his brothers um, moved from New York in the early 50s to Southern California because of all the opportunities between the movie industry, aerospace. But they had a small company that made um, arcade games. And my dad's company was actually contracted to install the, um, the Davy Crockett shooting gallery in Disneyland. And my dad always tells the story about going down there and he couldn't, um, he couldn't drive his truck onto the site. He said they had these little um, carts with burrows. In fact, they were the burrows that they later used for Nature's Wonderland. That you would load load your equipment onto the tr- onto the little burrow cart, and then it would take it. <laughs> and my dad remembered telling my mother coming back from you know his installation and saying, "My mom's name was Rosie, and he, he my dad was from New York." And he goes, "Rosalie, this place is gonna fail. It's not gonna last a year." He goes, "There's not a roller coaster in sight." He goes, "There's no uh, there's no hardly any rides there." The thing was, my, my dad's only frame of reference for a, quote, amusement park was Coney Island. Because growing up, he grew up in New York, and that's where they, they went as a kid. You know, and, they went, and there were roller coasters and the shoot the shoots and all those kinds of crazy things. And so, yeah, he, he was, oh, yeah, there's no Ferris wheel. How can you have an amusement park with no Ferris wheel? Well, of course, my dad, like many others, completely misunderstood what Walt was trying to do with creating you know, he wasn't creating an amusement park. He was creating this amazing, immersive, you know, world that, you know, brought people into his movies and into his mythologies, the things that he loved. So uh, I was, I, yeah, I, and then of course, later on my, when my dad, when I started building things and I took my dad to the park, of course, he, the light bulb finally went on that it was an amusement park. And that boy, I think Walt got it right. Right. It's not just the cyclone and Nathan's like, there's something else to, uh, to Disneyland. <laughs> well, so it doesn't, it, it's probably no surprise then that you, your, your creativity is, is nurtured and continues to grow. And you go to school at Cal arts, which in and of itself is incredibly impressive, but you also went to school with, like yourself, some incredibly impressive and, and creative people like John Lasseter, Tim Burton, John Musker, and others. I, I have to imagine, Joe, that you possibly or probably learned as much from them as you did from your professors, you know, who worked for and with Walt Disney. I, you are absolutely correct. <clears throat> and I often reflecting back. You know, often, you know, when we go through life, you know, we we take it as it comes. And, and it's only with upon reflection, you look back and really understand the significance of things. And there were many, many, there were many significant things about that CalArts experience. First, as you said, the amazing, talented people. And, and you know, and there was, we, we were all just a bunch of kids that loved Disney, loved to draw, loved storytelling. Um, it was a very, very healthy competition there. Um, but we were all, everyone helped everyone else. You know, you, I remember you walking around, you would start animating your scene and you walk over and I remember going to Brad Bird and flipping one of my early scenes and getting some tips from him. Um, <clears throat> so it really was, um, amazing group of people that, um, when I think about it, you know, and I often, I joke about this. I, I, I have, there's a, a photograph, pretty famous photograph of that first class um, 
that's out on the first class at Cal Arts. It's out there on the internet. And um, and so whenever I do a talk and I have a a, a visual you know screen and I'm, I'm presenting slides and whatever, I always start by showing that slide to remind myself and everybody else that you know. I'm basically an underachiever because when you look at people like when you look at people like you know John Lasseter who went on to start Pixar and John Musker who really was part of you know the renaissance of animation and then Tim Burton my gosh you know what what he's done but um it was great to have all that influence and um and to have the 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 camaraderie and the energy that you know having that that much creativity around you you know brought so again i looking back i'm so fortunate and uh, I, I i i can't imagine that my my i would have never had the the opportunities either had i not you know gotten into that class and i was able because you know disney was monitoring what we were were doing the whole purpose of that that class at cal arts it was start i was in the first character animation class because they disney knew that the the ranks were being depleted in animation the art form was really kind of at risk with many of the Walt's nine old men either retiring or passing on. So they knew they had, they had to create this program to re- replenish the ranks. But what I love is that it became, the people that came out of it actually became bigger than the program and what its goal was. Its goal was to create animators, but really what it did was create creative visionaries who went on to really change the entertainment world. Yeah, and we'll we'll get to your achievements and accomplishments because I think underachiever, I think you're selling yourself incredibly short. But before <laughs> we get into the actual projects, I, I want to talk a little bit about theory and and the process because obviously at, at places like CalArts, you learn about how story is paramount and and how to communicate it because I think we are we're all storytellers and you learn the the importance of combining the craft and the art as it were the physical thing and the creative thing but i but talk a little bit about the <clears throat> the importance of the emotional connection right again something that goes back to walt talking about how you know behind every smile there's a tear and behind every tear there's a smile how much you know through the process of of learning both in the classroom and at the drawing board did emotion come into play i I think that's what drew us all to Disney. I mean, as <clears throat> the, um, and I'm referring to the most of the people in, in the class, um, we all loved animation and animation was, you know, pretty broad. We all grew up watching uh, yeah, the Warner Brothers cartoons, which were, which were completely crazy and funny and watching uh, the Flintstones uh, on TV. Uh, which was, you know, like a, a, a sitcom. But the thing about Disney, it's exactly what you said. You know, Walt understood human nature. He understood that um, that the, the, the human creature, you know, our basic emotions are universal, that, you know, we all carry the same DNA about how we feel about each other and about our children and uh, about love and kindness and, um, you know, I never, I never met Walt, never got to meet him, but I was fortunate because I got to work with the people that knew him and worked with him directly. And some who knew him pretty intimately, um, John Hench worked at Imagineering until he was into his nineties. Uh, and, um, probably for me, my, one of my biggest mentors and the direct connection to Walt. So, um, every chance I could, I would go 
and talk with with John. And so, you know, sometimes getting specific advice about projects I was working on, um, and sometimes just talking philosophically about the world and about Walt. But John was always quick to point out that, you know, Walt was the eternal optimist, that nothing could hold him down. Every time he fell, he got back up, you know, brushed off the dust and, you know, moved forward and, and did something even greater than whatever the, the small failure might have been. Um, <clears throat> and so I think his films were, and I mean, Disneyland was, is, is a, a physical testament to his optimistic viewpoint of the world, especially, you know, post-World War II and the, in the 50s, you know, there, the world was filled with possibilities and Walt saw those possibilities. And um, did every, every land in Disneyland had some spirit of optimism in it. And I think it's that, that, that optimistic spirit and that kind of positive look, but it wasn't always, you know, he, he wasn't blind to the human condition that, that it didn't have its, its dark side. In fact, that's what made Walt's work so interesting is that, you know, he, he wasn't afraid to, you know, he didn't shy away from tragedy. You know, I think what made Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs so incredible and why it defied um, all the critics, you know, who thought, who the heck is going to sit through an hour's worth, you know, a couple, you know, an hour plus of cartoons. But they didn't realize that Walt knew how to connect with the human experience. And I remember, and I'm sure everybody remembers, that scene when, when Snow White has eaten the, the, the poisoned apple and is in, in her coffin and the dwarfs are kneeling around her in, in candlelight. There's not a dry eye in the place. I was, I was crying like a baby. And, the, and those were drawings. Those were drawings that did that. But they were drawings that were were representing real human emotions. And that was, that was the key to, 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 to Walt's genius and his success. Well, I think something else that's true, not just for Walt, but in, in storytelling and in art, um, you know, in leadership is risk mm -hmm. is taking risks. Um, that's oh, certainly yeah. what, what Walt did, you know, in, in, in every aspect of his life. And I think what you and the other creatives do in the art that you create, whether it be a two-dimensional drawing or a three-dimensional theme park attraction? I always said high risk, high reward. And, um, and for the most part, I think, you know, um, through the decades, there were the, the passionate people that understood that, that continued to make Disney great. Um, and I was fortunate to work with a lot of them where they're under their first off their understanding of, you know, what, what, what made Disney storytelling resonate. And second, their belief in that and their, their passion and their drive to, to maintain that. Um, it's also, it's interesting when, you know, when you work for a big company like, like Disney, um, you have to put your ego aside to, to some degree. I mean, you got your, your ego is important because that's what drives you and, and makes you want to do better. But um, I remember one of the first early, early on when we all our, our first group, the first group of animators that we, we graduated from Cal arts and we went to, to Disney animation and um, <clears throat> the mentor, our mentor, the gentleman that was in charge of the trainees, 
was a great one of Walt's nine old men, um, Eric Larson, a very soft spoken, um, brilliantly talented, you know, generous human being. And he was the, the perfect teacher for us, for the, the young, young animators that, that were coming in. And, um, and I remember we all, we all are in the training room and he sat us down. He goes, now, I just want you to remember one thing. He goes, you'll probably work two to three years slaving at your animation board, you know, to create your scenes. And, and then um, you'll go into the movie theater and you'll, you'll see them up there and you'll feel so pride. But just remember that everybody sitting in that theater will think Walt Disney did all of it. <laughs> And, and his, his point was that, you know, the thing that we were doing was bigger than us. And it was always good to, and I, I, and I took that with me. That was such good advice. And I took that with me through my entire career that this thing that we're doing, you know, if we, we, and it was important you know, to remind teams, remember this thing that we're doing is bigger than us. It will outlive us. Um, even myself today, I think about, you know, I've coming up on five years that I've, I've been away from Disney, but every single day, somebody somewhere in the world, even during this pandemic is enjoying something that I had the honor and privilege to work on. And that's a, that's a really amazing thing. But um, when you're in the process of doing it, I mean, it's important to remind yourself that, that, you know, all of us is better than one of us. Because that's coming. Because it's always it was always about about the team and that and keeping your eye on the prize. And the prize was the finished product and creating something that's going to you know withstand the test of time and be bigger than all of us. So and to that point, so you literally graduate Cal Arts on a Thursday and you're at work at Feature Animation three days mm-hmm. later, like Monday morning. There that that your break lasted the weekend. <laughs> Which is, again, an incredible accomplishment. It speaks volumes about the talent that they saw in you. But is there that that the, the Monday morning as you're getting ready to go to your first day at work at, at Walt Disney Feature Animation, the same studio that created Pinocchio so many years earlier, is there that sense of, I can't believe where I'm about to step foot in and, and where I'm going to start to work? And then what what is that first day? What's that first project like? Well, that is an incredible understatement. Yes. I mean, to, to have grown up, you know, like I said earlier, you know, watching Walt on Sunday nights and going to Disneyland and loving animation and loving Imagineering and, you know, everything Disney. Um, and of course, we all were aspiring to that, all of us being the, the students at Cal, Cal Arts. Um, and again, looking back, it's like many things, you know, you don't like I said earlier about the, um, the power of being in that classroom with all those students, with all my fellow students and not at the, at the moment, not really realizing how incredible that was. Um, not to say I wasn't completely, you know, um, in awe and blown away by the fact that here I am at the Walt Disney studios, you know, walking the hallways that Walt walked, you know, in fact, my office, the first office that I, I was in was um, um, Ollie Johnson, who was one of the, the nine old man. Frank, Frank Thomas and Ollie Johnson were kind, kind of a pair, but they did some of the most memorable animation scenes. And I was in his 
my the suite that I was in was Ollie Johnson. So we were all really aware of the the legacy that you know we were we were a part of now that we were we were moving you know we were going to be part of this ongoing you know amazing legacy of of creating these these unbelievable films. So um but you know you're you're human so you're you're scared and you're you're anxious and you know all the things wow and then then you know am you know, and everyone has, I had self-doubts. I, in fact, you know, I think having, having self-doubt is actually a good thing because it makes you question what you're doing and, and drives you. Um, and um, looking back, I mean, I had a lot of, wow, can I, can I really do this kind of moment? But again, I got to say, you're surrounded by, by people who are like-minded and many of them are sharing those same self-doubts, but many of them also are there to support you and move you forward. Like I said, um, Eric Larson was such a generous and giving and loving man too. And, you know, and he, he knew the, the emotional state of us there and would give us a, a lot of support. And unfortunately, there were a lot of people in my career along the way who always saw more in me than I saw in myself. And I thank those people every day. Um, I'll mention a few by name. Though one, of, I think my biggest champion for sure at Imagineering, and for sure was responsible for <clears throat> helping me, you know, get the assignments that I got was um, Marty Scalar. And um, I don't know if your listeners know who who Marty is. He's a legend. Um, you know, he, he worked. He also worked with Walt. Uh, you know, was was the president of Imagineering when when during during the the formative years when I when I was first starting there and then through a good chunk of my my career. But <clears throat> Marty, I always felt like Marty saw more in me than I saw in myself, and 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 celebrated it and pushed pushed me and and really helped me to you know to to reach for the stars and and. To, do more than I, I would have done had it not been for his encouragement. Yeah, and fear is always a great motivator too. So <laughs> yeah, fear is a good thing. <laughs> um, but you spend uh, you spend a number of years there working on films like Fox and the Hound, Black Cauldron, Great Mouse Detective, and from the there. I'm sorry. <laughs> I said they're not exactly. I, I was making light of the fact that those early films we were working on, you know, they they weren't necessarily the classics. And Little Mermaid really turned the corner for feature animation. But I think a lot of the the people that then went on to, you know, to create the the the, the renaissance of animation really cut their teeth on those those films. Um, and it was good for all of us, you know. You make mistakes, but you learn from your mistakes. And and it was because, you know, everything is a process in life. And we had to go through that process, you know, of trying to find our way, you know, through those those early films. And and some people stuck with it. I mean, some people moved on, like like Tim Burton and and others, you know. But um, but those were form those were really formative years. And those films may not be some of the best Disney films, but um, you can certainly see moments of the the coming brilliance when you watch those 
I, I always say, like the attraction, every film is somebody's favorite. So there's somebody who's, who's waving <laughs> the Black Cauldron flag pretty hard out there. Um, <laughs> Fair so enough. You, you spend eight years there and then you move on to Imagineering as a, a show designer. And you talked about Marty and, and some of your mentors seeing things in you that maybe you didn't recognize as in, in yourself. What do you think it was that they saw in you that they wanted or needed at WDDI beyond just, because I think it's more than just, and not to sort of minimize, but when I say just, but the, the, the ability to tell stories through animation, is it, is it the humor? Is it the humanity? What was it that they felt you would bring to WDI? Well, you know, I, like I mentioned earlier, I grew up, you know, watching Disney films, but I also grew up, like I also mentioned, watching Warner Brothers cartoons. And um, <laughs> I was a huge fan of Mad Magazine. So I always had kind of this, this um, love of humor as well. Um, but it was a nice balance, I think, between the love of humor and my understanding of the Disney emotional content and the, the need to have that in things that I tried to infuse in my work. And, um, and it was actually Tony Baxter who um, who brought me over to Imagineering. I, I showed him my portfolio. And I, and I think at the time, um, they were working on uh, Euro Disneyland. <clears throat> and uh, I remember having uh, a dinner with Tony. Uh, this was before I got hired and, and talking about, um, you know, what was going on. And Tony was talking about the fact that, you know, there was this lack of, of humor and, and the ability to capture that visually the way Mark Davis did. And I, and, and you notice I hesitated before I said, Mark's name <laughs> don't worry. Because... It's the comparison that it was that I, that I was going to make for you. So. Okay. And um, because uh, I was fortunate enough to know Mark. And again, I'm sure, I'm sure your listeners know who Mark Davis is amazing. Disney animator animated some of the, the most memorable Disney characters from, uh, you know, Cruella de Vil and uh, Tinkerbell and, and um, Maleficent from Sleeping Beauty. I mean, he was an amazing animator, but then went on to have an equally amazing career as um, an Imagineer and creating some of the most iconic attractions that, I mean, are the, the gold standard for what all of us looked up to, Pirates of the Caribbean, <clears throat> you know, Small World, the, the work he did on the Jungle Cruise. I mean, and he really understood how to infuse a scene in a ride with the most clear storytelling and with the strongest emotional impact. Um, and I studied him and I'm fortunate. I, I, I think, you know, I, I took some, some of that with me always and always, I mean, I always thought about, about, you know, you know, often they said, like, during those early years, everyone would ask themselves, you know, after Walt's passing, the big question, well, what would Walt do? Um, and, I, and I think that, you know, that that's, there's, some, there's something good about that, you know, because he established the standard that everybody wanted to live up to. Um, the danger in that, though, is when you, you can't look beyond that. And, and I think that actually hurted or, or hurt some of those earlier films because they were trying to second guess what Walt would do rather than just moving forward with a, a pure creative I, idea and then applying his philosophies to that pure, pure, pure creative idea. But um, I would often think to myself, well, what would Mark do? 
<laughs> and, um, you know, and he just had that ability to, you know, to, to capture the, the human condition, um, but also on, on an emotional level, but on a technical level. I mean, he just knew how to stage things with such visual clarity. And that in, in animation, you have 24 seconds, you know, um, there, there's 24 frames in one second of animation. So every drawing needs to count. I think that was one of the, the big, big learnings that I took with me in my career. You know, how can I most clearly communicate this idea? Strip away all the extraneous stuff and just get to the core of what you're trying, trying to do. Um, and that's kind of the technical piece of it. But then the, the emotional and storytelling pieces of it is then how do I infuse it with that, those human attributes and those things that are going to either make it funny or make it, uh, you know, poetic or make it, you know, uh, empathetic, you know, just how do you, how do I infuse it with, with those things? And, um, and like I said, it was certainly, certainly, um, certainly Mark's influence uh, was with me. So getting back to your question. So they, that's what, I think that's what Marty and, and Tony both saw in my work. And it was something that I tried to always hold on to in, in all the things I did. And I think if there's a, a single thread, if you look through all the things I did, there hopefully there are a couple things will stand out. That one, there's some, some emotional heart or core to it, and hopefully a sense of humor about it. Yeah, and sort of to that point, you know, you're transitioning now from animation to imagineering, where it's not just going from two to three dimensions, but I have to imagine part of the either the the challenge or the opportunity is sort of the the economy of storytelling. Now you don't have 90 minutes to tell a story. You have to communicate all of those same visuals and emotions in a much shorter period of time. Yeah, absolutely. And again, I think that's where that that animation training really served me well understanding, as I said a moment ago, that you have to really um, cut to the heart of what you're trying to say, strip away all that extraneous stuff. Um, I, always, I always talk to my teams about um, understanding the hierarchy of the storytelling in whatever you were doing and how you were going to apply it. If it's in a ride, if it's in a scene, you know, I always say, well, there's, there's always the, the, the primary story idea that you're trying trying to communicate that's number a so how are you visually going to do that and then b are those elements that support it and then c is all that other stuff around it but but being able to stop and think about um you know how you break down that hierarchy and then then understanding how to do you know how to apply the visuals to it how to apply all the technical pieces that are that come into play i mean <clears throat> Imagineering and, and building these attractions, as you know, is a really complicated process because there's so many hands that 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 touch it, so many brilliant hands and brilliant minds. Um, you know, understanding that you know there's there's going to be engineers, there's going to be lighting designers, audio designers, special effects designers, um, and by having by having everybody understand and rally around this idea of hierarchy, and they all understand you know what you're going after. It allows them to better understand how their piece of it is going to work into that that whole. Um, as a leader, I always made sure 
I always wanted everybody to know that their piece, when I was speaking to them, was the most important thing, you know, <clears throat> in whatever that was, whether it was attraction, a ride, a restaurant, a cruise ship thing, but also that helped them understand, you know, that the whole is greater than the sum of the parts it's made of. And yeah, your piece is really important. You know, that that special effect, audio effect that you're working on is great. But let me under, let me help you understand, you know, the bigger context and how it, it's going to be used. So, um, yeah, that whole, I think, I think understanding, you know, that, 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 uh, like I said earlier, we were always, always trying to remember that you're a part of something that's bigger than you are. Um, but also understanding the importance of your part in it. And so to the, to the point of that transition, you know, I think for, I think when, when WED was first created and, and Walt was sort of moving his animators and his designers over, there was this sort of question like, Walt, I'm, I don't, I don't even know. I don't know. I don't know anything about theme parks. And he says, well, you're a storyteller, you know, and, and, and it's just a matter of yeah. transitioning to being a story. You obviously understood that walking in the door, but what was that first project that you worked on when you got to WDI? Oh my goodness. Um, there were a couple things that were thrown at me immediately. Like I said, Tony um, wanted me to do look at some of the stuff that was being done on the uh, the new park for Paris, and I did some gags and some um, stuff for the uh, the haunted mansion. Or um, and then um, they were building Typhoon Lagoon down at Walt Disney World, and same thing. Um, I was asked to kind of just look at some of the, you know, that, that, the whole story idea there, I worked with Chris Ronco who came up with the idea. In fact, I still work with Chris, Chris and Chris is an amazing talent. And, and, you know, they had this crazy idea that, you know, there was this typhoon that came through and so everything was affected and it was very visual. So I got to really apply some of my, my visual storytelling to coming up with gags for, for that. But, um, but then one of the, the things I really enjoyed working on, they, at, the moment, at that time, they were thinking of redoing the Tiki Room. And that was during the, uh, the Michael Eisner years where they were bringing a lot of celebrities in to the company, you know, and there were a lot of movies being made. So they had this um, idea, and I don't know if it came from, from Michael Eisner or um, where it came from, of redoing the Tiki Room, but with personality birds. And the birds were all based on a lot of the movie stars that were that were being used in their movies at the time, like Bette Midler and Danny DeVito. So um, I came up with the show working with uh, uh, a couple writers and uh, it was uh, kind of a review, but each of the birds were based on one of these movie star characters. So I did all these caricatured birds. And, um, and I remember Marty was very, very, very supportive of it and really liked it. But we were having a hard time getting a meeting with um, Michael Eisner. And Marty was so supportive of the idea that, and then remember, this was before computers and cell phones and all those things, that <coughs> Marty had a book made of all my drawings for the, the show because he knew he was going to be on, uh, I don't know if it, whether it was going to be on an airplane or in a bus, or he was going to be you know, with Michael, and he had the little book under his arm of my drawing so he could pitch the show to Michael. And everybody liked, but I guess in the end, I, I forget why it, it never, never got built in, in that 
that form. Uh, I think they did go on later to do some some uh, different versions of of the tiki room, but uh, I just. <laughs> but I think so. I think of the 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 stuff that I did when I initially arrived at Imagineering that that was, and I think it also helped to establish me too as the guy that could do that kind of Mark Davis kind of work. Um, again, not comparing myself with Mark, but just it was a great opportunity. And and I look back and there, there I was I was fortunate enough that I was given these assignments that allowed me to, you know, show off what I did best. And I think that was a good example of that. Well, and it's interesting because, you know, you you start off at, at CalArts and there's, you know, obviously there's a there's a um um there's a certain amount of instant credibility that comes with that. And then you're brought into feature animation again, working at the place where your childhood movies were made. And then you're brought in to Disneyland, right? And there's got to be this pressure and, and burden sort of touching Walt's original park. And then in 91, you're promoted to a, a senior concept designer and you're tasked to work on Toontown, where now they're telling you, and I guess it, I guess there's a realization at some point there really is no establishing shot sort of ever of where Mickey and his friends lived. It's on you to sort of figure out what that needs to look like. You know, it's it's a little bit like that that same moment we discussed earlier of walking into the training room where you're excited and frightened um and looking and looking back at it, you know, you're a little naive too. You really, you just you have all that that youthful passion and and youthful optimism, and you really don't see the you know, in some in some ways you really don't understand the gravity of what you're up against. And in a way, that's that's how it was with with Toontown. Um, I had a great team of of artists that we were all assigned to this project. Um, we looked at ourselves kind of like the B team because this was right when they were doing um, Euro Disneyland. They were finishing up the the Disney MGM Studios at the time, uh, so <coughs> it was a, it was kind of a, a mixed blessing um, in that. Uh, the good the good news was we were very low on the ra- radar, so um, we just you know we didn't have the scrutiny that some of these other bigger projects projects had. Um, but we were also pretty naive, and in some ways, um, you know, I think that benefited us because we we didn't we didn't realize what we couldn't do, <laughs> which was which was great. Um, but so here we are, given this assignment to create the world that Mickey lives in. And our first thought was, oh, well, we'll just, you know, we'll just look at the films and it's going to all be there and, and we'll just translate that dimensionally. You know, that's, um, I mean, that's actually the benefit of working with IP and why every major theme park wants to have some big IP, you know, whether it's the Harry Potter or whether it's Marvel or Star Wars, because, you know, the worlds are so clearly defined for you. You know, you know who the characters are, you know you know, what the, the spaceship looks like or what the house looks like or what the, you know, the landscape looks like. <clears throat> but um, we didn't really have that benefit on, uh, on Toontown because um, when watching the cartoons, there was no 
um, specific Mickey's house or no specific house that Goofy lived in. There were you saw little bits and pieces of things. So we really had to had to depend on our understanding of the characters and um, and creating something that really spoke to who they were. Um, and and we watched a lot of cartoons, had a lot of discussions about you know who Mickey was and the kind of house that he would live in, who Goofy who Goofy you know is and what kind of house he would he would live in. Um, and in a way it kind of de designed itself um, because we, we, we always defaulted to the, the, again, you know, what are the, the core attributes of these characters and what would people expect, you know, what would they expect to find? What would they expect Mickey's house to be, be like having seen the cartoons and knowing who he is? So we had some guiding principles that we used to, to, um, to kind of form the, the, our design choices. And so I want to sort of move a little bit forward in your career, because obviously there's many things that you work on while you're at WDI. And, and I want to sort of get to the transition to when you become senior VP of creative and, and start working on Tokyo and, and Hong Kong. Mm -hmm. But before that, and and this is sort of the transition point. You you're tasked to work on uh, Haunted Mansion in Disneyland Paris, where you now have this conundrum of sort of taking this Frontierland Western theme there as opposed to what you have in Disneyland and, and Walt Disney World, and and sort of the you know the common thread that I want to sort of tie these two are the the challenges and maybe the opportunities in terms of telling a, a story that you've told before but different culturally mm -hmm. um that boy lou that's that's a that's a really good point um because i had i had a lot of um assignments where i had to translate something do it do it the second time and and not only do it the second time but then translate it to a different culture and made sure I understood the cultural lens that it was being seen through. Um, <clears throat> you know, as I mentioned earlier, I think Walt and, and the, um, and the work that he did was universal because he understood these, the, the core human attributes and, and emotions that you had to infuse into the work. But we also, as as the company grew, and I spent a lot of time working on projects, as you said, in Asia. I, I was in charge of the Tokyo Resort for over ten years, and then I was given the uh, the Hong Kong Park um, to oversee the expansion there. And then, um, of course, as you mentioned, the work I did in Paris. And I think um, you had to you had to look at the core idea that you were doing, because we, you know, I, I did the second version of Splash Mountain in Tokyo. <clears throat> and um, the core idea, you know, was strong, very, very strong. And uh, it was super fun. But then there were some cultural things that we had to take into consideration. Uh, and um, and, that, and the, the, the challenge there was always not to lose you know, lose sight of what the core idea was and what the the core core experiences was about, um, but all but also to know that um, 
that you, you know you had to make some sometimes technical changes, sometimes um, some story, small story adjustments. Not, never anything major. These were all kind of nuancy things, but <clears throat> it was important. I think that the the biggest one um, was when we started looking at doing the haunted mansion, or they wanted us to do a haunted mansion for Hong Kong. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> And, init- and initially, um, and I think many of the executives, because of the economics of it, were hopeful that we could just take the haunted mansion, one of the haunted mansions, either from Disneyland or Walt Disney World, and and build it there. But in China, they have a very different relationship with the afterlife and the way they think about, you know, ghosts and spirits. And we quickly learned that a bunch of you know happy singing ghosts would not resonate well there. Um, so we had to make a big left turn with that one. But we wanted to keep the spirit of what the Haunted Mansion was, and it was a grand illusion show. It was, you know, in the in the history of Imagineering, you look back, I mean, those guys really created a giant magic show that you that you you rode through um, with these incredible special effects. And so at the core of what we wanted to do, we wanted to keep and, and it's kind of scary fun. So those are kind of the core attributes, incredible illusions and make it scary fun. So its core DNA is still the Haunted Mansion, the things in the Haunted Mansion. But we just had to come up with a new story and a new story conceit that would resonate more with that that culture. And listen, it's the perfect transition because, Joe, as much as <laughs> I love and could talk for days about Tokyo Disneyland, specifically Disney Sea, uh, Mystic Manor may be far and away my favorite attraction for a variety of different reasons. And again, you're tasked when you go in with not just the cultural challenges, but even, you know, the Hong Kong government partners come in and say, look, you need to do something that's completely new, something that Mm -hmm. is unique, something that we're not going to find anywhere else. And again, I think that you have the, the blessing of the creative license of not having to base it on any other IP. Mm-hmm. So what is the the mindset? What is the excited opportunity that you saw going into what would eventually become Mystic Manor? Uh, well, as you said, you know, we had <clears throat> we had good partners in the, um, the Chinese Chinese government, at least the people that we were working with directly. And um, yeah, like you said, they they wanted something different. And boy, I think thinking back, what a great gift that was, because as much as I enjoyed working on projects that were based on an established IP. And I certainly did my, my share of them with uh, the monsters ride in, in, in Tokyo and working on toy story land and, um, you know, other IP based attractions. Um, It was a, it was an incredible opportunity to be able to create something um, that was totally original, a hundred percent original. now, having said that, as I said a moment ago, I think there was still the DNA of these other projects or other attractions uh, <clears throat> in both uh, Mystic Manor and in the, the uh, Grizzly Gulch, which was the other part of the expansion that we did, which was basically a, a take on a frontier tier land. But um, for, for Mystic, um, the challenge was to to create the story um, and have the same kind of emotional connection with 
the story and the characters as you would if you were working with an established IP. And with the established IP, as I mentioned earlier, you, you know, you've seen the movie, you know who the characters are, what their motivations are, what they're after, um, you know the world that they live in. And so <clears throat> when you're translating those things into a three-dimensional ride, you're, then your assignment becomes to find what, what are those, like, I, I call them the, the key touch points, the things that you know people will want to hear. Like I worked on the, um, on the Winnie the Pooh ride in, in Tokyo. I remember, um, you know, there were things that you, from the Winnie the Pooh world, you would want to see Tigger and you want to bounce with Tigger and you want to see Heffalumps and Woozles and you'll want to hear that music. So there's all those things that, you know, your job, a good portion of your job is already done for you um, because you know people are going to emotionally connect as soon as they see those characters and hear that music. <clears throat> so with Mystic, Mystic Manor, um, we first, you know, understanding and acknowledging our Chinese audience, you know, we, we looked at some of Chinese mythology and stories, and, you know, we, the, and the monkey played big in a lot of their, their mythology and their stories, the um, the journey to the West, of course, is about the monkey, monkey king and having to learn from his, his mistakes. And so that became one of the core ideas that, that we use. And as I said, we, we knew we also wanted it to be a big illusion house, like the original haunted mansion. So we wanted some mystical, magical piece to it. So those were kind of the things that, that, that formed the foundation, you know, the, the story idea, but then we also wanted to have some some empathy and some human connection too, um, because uh, you just don't want people to go through these things. And and if it works on, on a visual level um, and there's some cool thing to look at, that's great. But if there's some cool thing to look at that draws you into it and has some emotional connection, that's even better. And so that's what the relationship between the monkey and, and Lord Henry Mystic was all about. So, and again, we didn't have a movie to, to base it on, but they're just, you know, everybody has a pet or a son or a daughter, you know, that little, that relationship with that other person that you're looking after. So that was easy to establish, <clears throat> you know, that he, he rescued this monkey and that, that they had this, this bond. And it, it created a little bit of vulnerability for him. And then the monkey became our surrogate. You know, as you went through the attraction, the things that he was going through, because monkeys are so human-like, um, and because you understood what his motivation was, we were hopeful. And I think in the end, we succeeded that you would be drawn into the experience and be very empathetic and almost feel like it was happening to you. And in a way, way it was. <clears throat> Yeah, because it, so, it, Mystic Manor is a, a redemption story, right? It's a you know, it's it's, oh, yeah. uh, it's Albert the Monkey's redemption story. That's exactly yeah, exactly. Well, that, and that's that's what the the journey to the West was all about 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 the monkey learning from his mistakes, which we all hopefully we all do as we we move through this this life. Uh, nobody's perfect, and we all screw up. And but if you realize <laughs> if you realize what you did and can redeem yourself and learn from it and move on, then we're we're all the better for it. 
Yeah, and I'm sure you know having the again the creative opportunity, so you're not you're not basing it on sort of a a known narrative uh, as opposed to you know the story the story being the subtext. You're able to sort of create everything from from scratch. Um, and it really you know look, Mystic Manor for me is is sort of the perfect storm. It's story details, humor, technology, humanity, whimsy, adventure, all these things sort of come together perfectly look even i think even the place itself uh mystic point and and the building which when you first look at it you know when when after you had a chance to ride the attraction you realize just how perfect that mansion is because it's quirky and it it reflects sort of the character inside it's a little bit flawed too uh and so unlike you know the tower which is a little bit more evil and maniacal like uh for for harrison hightower this very much fits in not just the story but the characters you created inside right thank thank you for for pointing that out um yeah you know because the storytelling um, begins immediately when you walk up to to the mansion. The other thing we were um, we were also very conscious of is the fact that it, we were in a Magic Kingdom park. Um, like when we you, you mentioned um, Tower of Terror in Tokyo Disney Sea. Now, Tokyo Disney Sea is a little more. In fact, it was always intended to be the adult counterpart to Tokyo Disney Land. Tokyo Disney Land being more about the characters and fantasy and Tokyo Disney Sea being more about adventure and a little more grown up. <clears throat> so it allowed you to, um, and so we always used that filter when we were thinking about what we were putting into that park and how it would differentiate itself from something that you would put into Tokyo Disneyland. So the Tower of Terror there has, a, a, it's a little edgier, you know, and so when it came time to do the Mystic Point, we we remembered, well, we're in a Magic Kingdom park. And so Magic Kingdom parks are about just that magic and fantasy and the Disney ca- character. So we, we made sure things went through that filter, too. So it wasn't it, it's a little edgy. You know, there, there's there's some scary moments in it, but it always had to be scary fun. In fact, that that's why we. Yeah, I'm sure you've you've heard the story how we ended up getting um, Danny Elfman to do the music. His his agent was at D23 and saw the model for it, and 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 Danny was at this point in his career where he wanted to do some new things, and so the agent gave us the call. And I remember receiving that call at the, the that day, and you know, it's um, Richard Kraft was the agent saying, he says, "Hi, I'm calling on behalf of Danny Elfman. He wants to work on Mystic Manor." And I go. <laughs> Imagine getting that because you, you know, of course, I'm a huge fan of, of Danny's work, and 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 um, and he was he was the perfect match for for that attraction because it was just I think all the work he did with Burton, and I think it's a hallmark of Burton's work, and I'll have to tip my hat to to Tim and say, of course, he influenced our thinking on Mystic Manor is that that his stuff is scary fun. I mean, there's always a little a little bit of humor behind the, you know, what, what could otherwise be looked at as more macabre kind of uh, subject matter. Um, well, and it dovetails in perfectly because having him come aboard, because I, I think the music for Mystic Manor is so memorable, so important, and it ties into what you end up deciding to use this, this Balinese music box as 
a vehicle to help sort of culturally translate yeah. the mansion um, and using this sort of idea of the the enchanted artifacts and that I- incredibly beautiful and haunting theme. Yeah, in fact, we we thought of the music as another character, you know, and just the same way the the there was a, a character arc to the monkey and and in, and in a more subtext kind of way a character arc to um, Lord Henry. Uh, the music was certainly considered a character as well, and and how it moved through the 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 kind of the sequence of of events, and you know, kind of changed and morphed, and in a way, its relationship with the monkey and how the monkey ended up 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 using it. But yeah, music music is always such. As I said earlier, I'm a I'm a musician, and um, you know, I played music all my my life and and certainly has a, uh, the ability to to um, inform the emotional um, the emotional temperature the emotional content and you know in a, in a really really powerful way um, <clears throat> I remember early on uh, in Cal arts and this again this is one of those great things where you know it wasn't this wasn't something the teachers taught us some somebody had read about um there was a great the, a great warner brothers director chuck jones and he always talked about how he would turn the sound off on on his his cartoons to make sure that they were they were reading you know visually that you could follow the story without it but then he would challenge the the composer you know to make sure that that the music took those <clears throat> those visuals and brought them to another level and I remember somebody saying, well, go, yeah, you said, have you ever watched the opening of Indiana Jones without the music? <laughs> and um, it was actually at the, there was a concert at the Hollywood Bowl here in Cal- California with um, John Williams and Steven Spielberg. And Spielberg wanted to make that same point. And he he showed some of the scenes, iconic scenes from many of the films that that John Williams had had composed for but first showed the scene without the music and then showed the scene with the music afterward. And it's, it's amazing the difference that the music has on not only telling you how you're supposed to feel, but elevating the, the, the visuals. I mean, and what you're looking at just becomes even more powerful. And in some way, if, when you're working with a great composer, they're able even to help focus moments like I was talking earlier on about the hierarchy you know understanding you know what are those 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 storytelling points that you really want to make sure you get through to the audience and a great composer you know and when he's working with a great director are able to really focus in on the those things and and the thing is it it, and it but it doesn't get in the way Mm -hmm. you know it's not like the music becomes bigger than what's there in the end and that's the genius of you know these guys, and you know, and and when when it works, it works in such a way that you don't understand. You don't, you're you're not conscious of it. It's just it's taking it's grabbing you emotionally and taking you to this other other place. And that's 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 the genius of it, as I said. Well, and that's why the the attraction is is so brilliant because at its core, the, its its foundation is on story and characters and music, and then built on top of that is the utilization of technology as opposed to a lot of times you'll see that Mm -hmm. used opposite in in some of the places. Great technology, maybe not great story. And I think we would be remiss if we didn't mention because I will tell you the first time I wrote a Joe, I I was by myself 
and I had this, I was choked up with emotion, not because I had this sympathy for the monkey, but I was overwhelmed but I, by what I was seeing and what I was feeling. And not, it wasn't because of the technology, but man, the technology in that, that it's beyond project. Look, if you've been, and I know you worked on, on Runaway Railway, but if you've seen Runaway uh-huh. Railway, this seamless use of three dimensions, the Medusa mosaic and that Egyptian uh-huh. or money and that, that wind scene, it's, it's spellbinding. And it, it, there's a sense of you, you, how did they do that? But I don't want to know how they did that. Right. That Lou, you're very insightful. <laughs> um, yeah. Cause that, that we knew, as I said earlier, we wanted to create this big illusion house. And we also knew that, you know, um, we were fortunate because technology had progressed, you know, way beyond the, uh, to a point where we had much more sophisticated tools than, um, than the Imagineers who did the original haunted mansion. That's in no way to to uh, underplay what they did because they they used a lot of old, literally old magic tricks. Used the t- smoke and mirrors, a lot of mirrors, to, uh, and I think and that's the genius of that. But we had thing we had you know projection mapping and we had you know uh, computer controlled lasers. But um, I remember, and I've told this story before. Uh, I was watching the closing uh, ceremonies to uh, I. I think it was the um, the Olympic Games in Canada, and the the clo- they they did some incredible effects with projection and semi dimensional forms, but it completely blurred the line between the 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 dimensional forms and the projection. <clears throat> and I went in the next day to my team, and I because you know we'd been we'd already been playing around with a lot of projection. And um, and there were already a number of attractions out there where where projection became the thing you were looking at, um, and in some ways, if it's done well, it can still engage you emotionally. But you always know I'm looking at projection. And I remember saying to the team, I said, I don't ever want the guests to to know that what they're looking at is coming out of a projector. You know that it either has to be blended. Like you mentioned the Medusa. And uh, there, there was a number, number of places in that attraction where we wanted to make sure the lines were completely blurred. We used a lot of projection. The finale scene where, where the, <clears throat> the wall blows out and the monkey you know, is scrambling to try to grab the, the, the music box and get the, the dust under control. That scene is half projected and half real. And we actually had to balance like there was one wall that was painted black light and one wall that was projected and had to get the, 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 the temperature the light temperature exactly the same. So you couldn't tell which was, which was real and which was projected. And there were a lot of moments like that through, through the whole attraction. But the end result is that, you know, it doesn't get in the way then you're not, as you said, Lou, and very, very insightfully, you're not aware of the technology, but man, we had some great technology to work with. We were the first to use that computer controlled laser that created the music dust, <clears throat> which was brand new technology. In fact, we didn't really know how we were going to do the music dust. We had um, some special effects guys working on, we had a variety of different approaches. Some were going to be practical, like with, with little, um, like little sparkly things dropping from the ceiling and lights hitting them. And, but um, 
when we saw that laser technology, it was like, wow, that was an, an answer to our prayers because it was the perfect technology. And then we had some really smart people who understood how to uh, integrate it into the show that we were trying to do. So you mentioned uh, uh, blurring the lines and not just in terms of technology, but I think of blurring the lines in terms of the overarching story to, story itself, because for a lot of attractions, and I, I mean sometimes in other places, um, you know, outside of Disney, the story sort of begins and ends when you enter and exit the black box. And here in Mystic Manor and Mystic Point, I think the storyline begins as you enter the land and it continues even as you exit the attraction and, and the wonderful gift shop, by the way. And the, the storyline here that bleeds through is not just of Lord Henry Mystic, but the entire SEA, uh, which I've talked oh. about back on show 579, which <laughs> to me is is one of the most fascinating and intriguing and wonderful stories. And it continues over, like you said, to to Tower of Terror in Tokyo. Is it, Talk a little bit about the SEA, and, and is it something that you hope or expect would be continue to be expanded. And there seems to be a lot of, a lot of interest in it. Um, and I, and I love that there is, and I love that it is its own IP now, or it's becoming its own IP. Um, and I love that, <clears throat> that there's a lot of Imagineers that are taking that, that idea and trying to, trying to find ways to infuse it into either existing attractions or new attra- attractions. And I, I just, and it's, 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 a, it's a piece of mythology that if you want to dig into it, I think you can go really deep. Um, on the surface, it was, you know, the original idea, I, I think, was started at Tokyo Disney Sea with, um, with uh, the team that was working on that, that park um, <clears throat> and creating the society of explorers and adventurers. And, um, and in fact, I think they were probably inspired by uh, the, uh, the now defunct adventures club at Walt Disney world, which was one of my favorite <laughs> nightclubs. I, I spent so many fun nights there. That was amazing. You know? And, uh, and that's why when we did the Tokyo um, Tower of Terror, which is you know, is also an extension of the SEA story, and we we created the Harrison Hyde Tower character, um, you know, we based it on Joe Rody because <laughs> Joe Rody was kind of the model of the the the, the explorer and adventurer that uh, that made up the uh, the members of that that society. Um, <clears throat> So it's been fun, and I could probably go on and on about that. In fact, maybe there's another whole, another whole interview about the, the uh, the the SCA. But uh, we sure had fun with it. And uh, like I said, um, it's one of those things. You know, I I often talk uh, in these interviews about our guests, and that there's kind of three levels of guests. There's there's the floaters, the swimmers, and the divers. You know, when you got to think about when you're designing an attraction, there are those people that go there that just want some kind of, I don't want to call it superficial experience, but just are going to take things on face value and just enjoy it for what it, what it is. And those are the floaters. <clears throat> but then you get the swimmers who know a little bit more about what you're trying to do and have a little more interest and will be a little more sensitized and, and, and look at what, what you've done there and, and take it at a deeper level. But then you have uh, the, the, 
the divers. You have your floaters, your swimmers, and then those divers are those people that the Uber fans who, you know, totally, you know, read all the blogs, have, have read, you know, have watched all the interviews and just want to go as deep into the experience as po possible. So it's great. I think what this SEA thing does, it really does. It creates just this, this broader framework for the storytelling, but then just allows for these many, many layers of storytelling. Um, and that's exciting. And I'm, and I'm glad to see that, that people are picking up on it and are, and are still uh, enjoying it and are running with it and creating more, more depths and levels to it. Joe, I want to be respectful of your time. And again, we haven't even talked about some other uh, attractions in, in Hong Kong, as well as everything that you did over at Tokyo Disneyland, Tokyo Disney Sea, the reimagining of Disney Cruise Line. Maybe I can convince you to, uh, to come back uh, again. But just to, in terms of, of tying this part of your story in a bow um you know again you you've since left the walt disney company and and i think that you've left this incredible legacy behind you for other guests um other imagineers other imagine uh, um, other artists um, other kids who might want to follow in similar footsteps um what what would be the advice that you would give somebody who, you know, you mentioned, you know, sort of being, you know, Mark Davis or, or something. What do you give to advice that says, I want to be the next Joe Lancicero? <laughs> you know what? I think um, the advice I would give is what I said earlier about my admiration for Mark Davis, um, that I, I knew I could, I, I didn't, I could never draw as well as him and didn't have the opportunities to do all the kind of things that he did in a man in uh in animation and but i studied i studied what made him great and i studied you know those <coughs> those things that kind of the progression of his career so um i would never want anybody to try to be me but i would hope that they could look at my work and look at the things that i learned along the way and look at how i took those learnings and applied them to what i did the same way I looked at Mark and the same way I talked about Walt and the things I learned from Walt. I mean, it's, it's kind of this continuum, you know, we're all, we're all kind of holding hands, you know, <clears throat> those guys held Walt's hands. I held Mark's hands. You know, I, there were Imagineers that worked with me that held my hands and now there's, there's more Imagineers out there. And I, and I would hope, you know, they would learn from all the things that we did but dang, they're 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 their own brilliant, smart, talented person, and hopefully they're going to you know have some some new insight into storytelling and some new insight into some technology and take that and apply the things that we did, but take it to a, a whole new level and create something that's going to blow the world away. Well, Joe, your your personal story is fascinating. Your um your work and your and I understand it's a it's a collaborative it's a team effort but your work um and your contributions to uh the Disney parks has been remarkable um I hope that I can convince you to come back and we can talk about so much more that you worked on but um uh, as as again a a Disney fan and enthusiast first um, my appreciation for the work that you have helped put into the Disney parks and the experiences that you have given to me and other guests, uh, I want you to know is, is incredibly appreciated. So thank you. 
Wow. I don't, I don't take that lightly. Um, and thank you very, very much. And as I've said, I've, I've, I feel incredibly privileged that I was, I was able to, I had these opportunities that allowed me to create these things that, like I said, um, became bigger than me and will live on long after I'm gone. And that's kind of a very, very unique and privileged thing in this world. And I don't take it for granted. And I thank you for acknowledging that. Well, thank you for your time. I really appreciate it. It My absolute pleasure. And you don't have to twist my arm to get me to come back to talk more in the future. (laughs) I would love it. Uh, Joe, thank you again um, for for doing this today and and for sharing your stories um, and being so patient, getting this, this all scheduled. That was be like everything you and Disney does exceeded expectations. It's time for our Walt Disney World Trivia Question of the Week, where I invite you to test your knowledge of Walt Disney World's history or see how well you pay attention to the details of what you see, hear, or remember If you think you know the answer, you can enter via our online form at www.radio.com for a chance to win a Disney prize package. Of course, before we get to this week's question, we're going to go back, review last week's, and select our winner. So last week, I took you over and back to Epcot Center and asked you, what is Stupid Judy's last name? Stupid Judy, of course, from Ellen's Energy Adventure. And first, thanks to the hundreds of you who entered, got this one correct, and knew that Stupid Judy's last name was not Judy, but Peterson. In fact, it's mentioned not once, but twice by Stupid Judy and the Jeopardy announcer, Johnny Gilbert. What are you watching? Jeopardy. Yes. So I took all the correct entries, randomly selected one, and again, last week you were playing for my brand new Disney Interviews book, my 102 Ways to Save Money for Not Walt Disney World book, and all seven of my virtual audio walking tours of the Magic Kingdom's Secrets, History, and Stories. You can find all those at www.radio.com. And last week's winner, randomly selected, is... Peg Sinicola. So, Peg, congratulations. Thank you for playing. I have your email address. I will get your prize package out to you right away. If you played last week and didn't win, that's okay, because here's your next chance to enter in this week's timely Walt Disney World Trivia Challenge. So, it is Christmas time. We are all in the Christmas chaos and spirit. And so, I want you to tell me, who are the three owners of the three stores that make up the single ye old Christmas shop in Liberty Square in Walt Disney World's Magic Kingdom. Again, the ye old Christmas shop is actually made up of three different stores, according to story, that make up this single location. See if you can connect the dots and tell me what are the names of the three owners of the stores that make up the shop. Because this one's a little tricky, and because in the spirit of the season... I'm going to send you a print copy of my digital Disney interviews book, a WW Radio mug, some stickers, a magnet, and my 102 ways to save money for that Walt Disney World book, and all seven of my digital audio walking tours. So good luck. 
Happy holidays. Merry Christmas. And have fun. That's going to do it for this week's show. Thank you so very much for taking the time to tune in this and every week. I hope you had some fun, learned something new, and that the show brought you a little bit of happiness and Disney magic to your day and your week. Thanks again to Joe Lancicero. If you enjoyed the interview with Joe, I think you might enjoy my new Disney Interviews book, Volume 1, which is now available on Amazon.com or by going to DisneyInterviews.com. It's a collection of 12 of my one-on-one interviews and conversations with Imagineers, artists, actors, musicians, magic makers, and mouseketeers who worked for and with Walt Disney and the Disney Company in the creation of the Disney parks, the movies and television series, or were instrumental in helping to preserve his legacy and history. Some of the interviews include Julie Andrews, star of Mary Poppins, Marty Sklar, Alice Davis, who designed and created costumes for animated figures for attractions like Small World and Pirates and Carousel of Progress, Dave Smith, the founder of the Disney Archives, Richard Sherman, and many more. Again, you can find it by going to DisneyInterviews.com or just searching for Disney Interviews on Amazon. Please don't forget to be part of the community and conversation by going to our Facebook group at www.radio.com slash clubhouse. Also, be sure and join us every Wednesday night at 7.30 p.m. Eastern for WW Radio Live. It's our live video broadcast and chat on Facebook where I share everything from my weekly Top 5 Live, a recap and discussion of this week's show, along with your questions, my Disney Plus Pick of the Week, contests and more again you could just go to ww radio live that'll take you right to the group where you can be part of the show you can also connect with me on social i am at lou Mangello on twitter instagram facebook pinterest and linkedin and if you have a question you want me to answer on the show you can email me lou at wwradio.com or call the voicemail at 407-900-9391 that's 407-900-wdw1 please visit wdwradio.com slash ebay where i am sharing 10 new items from my personal collection. Auctions begin and end every Sunday night at 9 p.m. Eastern. I have gone through items in my closet, my shelves, and storage and want to share it with you in hopes it will reach people who can enjoy and appreciate it. So each week, starting and ending at Sundays, 9 p.m. Eastern, I am sharing 10 new items, including a lot of rare vintage items. And if you are a Star Wars fan and collector, stay tuned. Right after the first of the year, I have a number of mint-on-card, unpunched figures that I'll be putting up again. Check out the items every week at www.radio.com slash eBay. Speaking of thanks, I want to thank some of the new and longtime members of the WW Radio Nation family, including Gwyn Cornell, Harold P., Chris Blagg, Catherine Locke, Andy Merritt, and Ross T. I sincerely appreciate your love, support, friendship, and help. And I love being able to give back to you each and every month. And if you want to find out how you can not only help the show, and that's part of what being part of the nation does, but more importantly, you get exclusive rewards every month, including scavenger hunts, trivia quests. We have a private Facebook group, magic band covers, logo gear, T-shirts, backpacks, monthly care packages from Walt Disney World, exclusive live video group calls, early access and discounts to events, and lots more. You can visit www.radio.com slash support. I'll also be sharing some new updates, changes, and rewards coming to some of the different tiers after the first of the year. Don't forget, it's completely optional, starting at just a dollar a month, but it is a great way for you not only to help support your show, support the show, but but don't forget that a portion of the proceeds of your contributions go to our Dream Team project that directly benefit the Make-A-Wish Foundation of America. Again, just go to www.radio.com support. 
I also want you to know how grateful I am for the opportunity and the life really that you have helped give me. And I want to give back to you and help you turn what you love into what you do. If you go to lumangelo.com, you can find out some of the ways we can work together, including one-on-one mentoring calls. I'm actually in the process of forming brand new Tuesday night weekly mastermind groups beginning just after the first of the year that help you pursue your passion, build your brand, grow your business, and improve your life. Again, just visit lumangelo.com and click on the coaching tab there. Thanks as always to Becky Mackin and the entire team at MouseFan Travel. They are my official and recommended travel provider. And now is the time, now is the best time to start planning your next Walt Disney World vacation. You can visit them at mousefantravel.com for a free, no obligation quote, all available discounts, all at no cost to you. Get your free no-obligation quote at mousefantravel.com. And as always, my friend, and you are my friend, whether we have met yet or not, all I ask is that you please help spread the word. Let a friend know. Tell others about it by tweeting out that you're listening and sharing a link over on Facebook or Instagram or Pinterest. And if you can, take just a couple of seconds to rate and review the show over on Apple Podcasts. It's incredibly helpful. I want to thank some recent reviewers like gzav1212 who says, experience Disney with friends. I've become part of the WW Radio family in the past few months. I love Lou's positivity and Disney knowledge. It's more than a podcast. It's a way of life. Wow. Start listening and join the clubhouse on Facebook. I feel like I'm sitting at my desk with my friends listening to a Disney debate when I tune in. Hashtag choose the good. And Erica BT says, fantastic Disney podcast. I've been listening to Lou for about 10 years. His WW Radio podcast has exponentially increased my enjoyment of my Disney trips and my appreciation for all things Disney. Lou's overall positive energy and approach to life is extremely refreshing in today's world. A much needed oasis. Erica Gzav, thank you so very much. Again, just search for WW Radio in Apple Podcasts or you can go to www.radio.com slash iTunes for instructions and a link. Finally, most importantly, I hope that you are surrounded by those that you love both virtually or in person hashtag stay safe in this holiday season i know looking back on 2020 it has been a challenging and difficult and scary and frustrating and sad year in so many ways but i hope that you take a moment to appreciate not necessarily what you have but who you have the same way that i appreciate you every single day whether we have met yet or not i hope that this show has continued to bring you some happiness, especially in these dark and difficult times as we look forward to turning the page to what I hope and pray is a better year. But the best gift I could ask for this or any year has been you and your friendship and your love and support. And I hope that this show has been a bright spot for you and it has brought you some happiness, some inspiration and some positivity and hopefully inspires you to, yes, go out there and choose the good and find the good in everything that you encounter and to be the good, not just for yourself, but for others. I hope you have a very safe, happy, healthy, delicious holiday filled with love and joy. And if there's ever anything that I can do for you to say thank you or to help you, please, please let me know. So until next time, Merry Christmas, Happy Hanukkah, Happy Kwanzaa, whatever it is that you celebrate, however it is that you celebrate it. Um, I hope that you enjoy the spirit of the season. See ya. Hey, Lou. Mark from Georgia here. I just listened to your recent episode about the top 10 actor cameos in the parks and thought it was very good. And I wanted to give you my impersonation of one of my favorites. 
in the beginning, of course, there was foot power. So you might recognize this line at the very beginning of World of Motion, which was narrated by world-famous DJ and voice actor Gary Owens, who you might also recognize from his portrayals of the Blue Falcon, Roger Ramjet. He was the narrator of The Perils of Penelope Pit Stop, and of course he was the world-famous space ghost Coast to Coast. And you might recognize him in the Herb, Herbie the Love Bug. He was one of the um, race public announcers. And another fun fact about Gary is that he actually has a star on Hollywood Boulevard that just so happens to be beside Walt Disney's star. I thought that was pretty cool. And so I thought you might enjoy that connection between the world of motion and Ren and Snippy's Powdered Toast Man. So before I hang up, I'd like to remind everybody that mobility is the byword of modern transportation, a way to move from here to there for every need and every care. Now it's really fun to be free. Take care. Hey, Lou. It's Christine Morrison from Flowertown, Pennsylvania. I'm just calling in because I saw your post about starting uh, the Mousepreneurs. Um, there is, and I'm sure everybody knows about it, and if you don't, then here you go, but there's Ear, Ear for You Facebook page, and it is all cast members that um, can just show us what they can make, and we can buy from them. I can't even find the words that I'm looking for, but anyway, they're side hustles, all their side hustles, I call it, or their businesses that they're doing um, after they've been furloughed or let go. So somebody told me about this, and for our trip in January, I'm trying to talk softly because I don't want my kids to hear, I found four bakers on there that are cast members, and every two days um, at our hotel, we're going to have some sort of special treat delivered, so the bakers will deliver to your resort, so you can ask them for anything, and they will make it and deliver it. So we're staying at the beach club, and every two days of our trip, there's going to be a special treat delivered to our hotel by a cast member who bakes on the side. And one of them is actually a pastry chef from the Yacht and Beach Club who was let go because of COVID. So um, everybody check it out. It's a really, really cool way to support the cast members and to add a little magic to your trip. So it's called Ear for You, and they'll do anything. It doesn't have to be baking, but you can ask. Um, they make everything, ornaments, pillows, everything. There's everybody on there. So anything you might be looking for, go there, ask a cast member, and support their business. Everybody makes someone smile. It's supposed to snow here in Pennsylvania. It was trying to snow today, but we got mostly rain, but the snow's coming. I don't want it. <laughs> Take care. Everybody have a great day, and I'll see you all on Wednesday night in the box. Good morning. It's Darlene Aggie, the half marathon runner and the girl formerly of West Seneca, New York. <laughs> I am doing a walk with the boys today, and I was just thinking that we are like two weeks away from Christmas and three weeks away from the new year. And let's just hope and pray that everything gets better very soon. I am very hopeful and positive that things will definitely look better in 2021. And then 
who can start planning events. Um, we do have a event scheduled, a surprise one, in February. So look for information on that. So that's only less than two months away. Have a wonderful, magical day and weekend. Stay positive, as Lou always says. Love and hugs.